This morning we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 6 through 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 6 through 13. And in honor of God's word, would you stand with me as I read this passage? I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you've become kings. And would that you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we've become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To this present hour, we hunger and thirst, we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So in this letter to the Corinthians, Paul has been addressing the, the factions that were forming in the church in Corinth. I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Apollos, and dividing up into all these little uh, separate groups. They, they were um, just, to kind of explain it, the culture at that time had this um, way of dealing with life in that uh, there were prominent wealthy people in the community. And if they were your mentor, um, then if they sponsored you, then your business was approved by them. So everybody kind of was under somebody. And so if they said, well, my sponsor is so-and-so, people, oh, okay, yeah, well, I'll do business with you. And the church was kind of doing that. They were, they were going, I'm really important because... I follow Paul. And then, oh, no, 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 I'm more important than you. I follow Cephas. Cephas was with Jesus. And, and others, no, I follow Apollos. He's more eloquent, you know, because that was a big thing in the culture at that time is how eloquent you are. They thought related to how, how much truth you knew. And so Paul's been addressing this. And some people say, as we get through chapter four, they say, well, he switched on to another topic. I don't think so. I think he's still addressing this main issue of pride and, and judging who's better than someone else. Only God can judge whether a person is faithful or not. We saw in our previous passage how he's the only one who knows the motives of the heart. In our passage today, Paul continues with this description of how lowly the teacher's role is in the eyes of this world and contrasted their lives and the worldly emphasis that the Corinthian believers had. Verse six again, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, 
that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Paul's told them, and, and by us as well, how God views teachers. The things that Paul applied were the scriptures. It was a scriptural perspective regarding the role of teachers. He didn't want them to go beyond what the scriptures teach regarding the humble role of teachers. And he was pointing to Isaiah 29, 14 in chapter 1, verse 19 of this letter, quoting, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. A little later in verse 31, he alluded to Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And then chapter 2, verse 16, quoting Isaiah 40, 13. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? And in 1 Corinthians 3, 19 and 20, he quoted both Job 5, 13 and Psalm 94, 11. He catches the wise in their craftiness and the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. So Paul's saying, I'm giving you these scriptures. Don't go beyond what is written. Here's our guideline, the word of God. He wanted them to learn that the recorded word was our boundaries. This is the source of every problem in the church in our own lives. It's going beyond what is written. We ignore the principles found in the word. And that's either because we are, get too familiar with the scriptures and we ignore those principles found in God's word. We get careless. We neglect the application of them. And I could tell you story after story of people that have come through Wayside. They had some weird doctrine or some strange idea and we elders sit down with them and show them what the word of God says, but they know better and, and they're gone. We must decide whether we're going to submit ourselves to the word of God or not. The very morning I was, I was working on this sermon, Jory sent me a text which quoted Andrew Murray. It said, a readiness is to believe every promise implicitly, to obey every command unhesitating." To stand perfect and complete in all the will of God is the only true spirit of Bible study. I thought, what a great quote and how perfectly it fits with this message that Paul is trying to convey. And that is where we find our unity in the word of God. That's where we are one in Christ, the word made flesh. That is our common ground, the rock on which we stand. But if you bring the world's culture into the church and add their ideas and their sayings, you'll end up causing division. It's happened throughout church history, and it's happening today in teachings such as the critical race theory or the prosperity gospel and other unbiblical teaching that comes from the world. Sadly, um, it usually comes out of universities and seminaries. Paul added the reason to not go beyond what is written is that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. You see, he's still addressing that our group is better than your group. 
We humble ourselves and we submit to the mind of Christ revealed in the word of God. Or we pridefully think we are better than others. Usually that comes in the form of twisting a verse or using one single verse to vindicate one's own idea, that the idea we want to see implemented. In other words, we're saying, listen up, people, because you just don't get it. I have the truth, I have the best teacher, or I have the best concept that you all are just missing. What's the matter with everybody? And what usually follows in time is you need to follow me, right? That is being puffed up in favor of one against another. And it destroys unity and exalts an individual rather than boasting in the Lord. The principle of these verses that Paul has cited is that man's wisdom is futile. If you are preferring one teacher over another, are you wise enough to know what is best in the eyes of the one who sees the motivations of the heart? If you boast, it should only be in the Lord, never in man, because you don't know their heart. Teachers, all of them, will answer to God. The other extreme is thinking too little of our teachers. You know, you have the one extreme of, of this guy's the best and everyone should follow this one. And then you have the other extreme of, of not uh, respecting the teachers that God's provided. The problem is still pride. We might ask ourselves if we believe God is sovereign, and if he is, then there must be something that God wants us to learn from those he's appointed to teach us. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't check what they're teaching with the word of God. We should absolutely do that. And it means we should humbly listen for what God is showing us through that teacher. If what they teach is not in accord with scripture, of course, we should bring it to the elders of the church. And when that happens, we might discover we are wrong or the elders can make a correction when they see the truth of what you're sharing. We should all be submitting ourselves to the word of God, amen? What else are you gonna align it with? This morning in the Sunday Bible study, we talked about this world's wisdom is constantly changing. It's always, it's one thing today, it's another thing tomorrow, and 10 years from now, it'll be something totally different. But the word of God never changes. Amen. It's the same forever. That's why it is the standard. It is God's gift to us. When there's an accusation of sin against an elder, two or more persons should bring that to the elders of the church and present their case. And if those elders are chosen according to the biblical directions in Titus and Timothy, then you should be able to trust their decision. This is why it's so important to make part of your decision in finding a church to look for one that appoints elders who are equal and accountable with one another. Men who know God's word and have a godly reputation, not merely those who are influential or prosperous or a single pastor who makes all the decisions. Verse seven, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast if you did not, as if you did not receive it? Now that, that first question, 
who sees anything different in you? It's really hard to translate the Greek here. It, it literally means who distinguishes you. Fee translate it into the modern equivalent of who do you think you are? I think the idea is that what applies to teachers applies to all of us. It's presumptuous for, for us to think that we can judge God's servants. We can't judge one another any more than we can uh, judge uh, our teacher. We cannot judge one another. God's word tells us not to or will be judged with the same measure that we use. Now, of course, you can see fruits, you can see bad fruits, and you can see what's clearly against the word of God, but we can't judge the motives of the heart. I remember one time uh, when I first came to Wayside, I was here almost a year, and uh, a group decided that I had a certain motive, and they kept telling me I had this motive, and I kept telling them, I don't have that motive. <laughs> you can't defend yourself from someone's uh, thought about your motive. Only God knows the motives of the heart. We can't judge people's motives. Whatever a teacher has, or whatever we all have, are gifts from God. This verse is a, it's a great leveler. Everything we have is from God. He gave us our life, our health, our talents, our ability, our family, our friends, our sustenance, the air that we breathe, we can say without God, we are nothing, but take it literally, because without God, we would not be. We would not exist. And that's why pride is such a heinous sin. C.H. Spurgeon commented on this verse. He said, pride is the inherent sin of man, and yet it is of all sins the most foolish. A thousand arguments might be used to show its absurdity, but none of these would be sufficient to quench its vitality. We owe all to God, and yet we often treat him as if he owes us something. We say things like, God, I can't believe you would let this happen to me after I've been so faithful. What a declaration of our fallenness. Amen. What do you think that you have that you did not receive? What a powerfully humbling question, huh? Do you have anything that wasn't given to you? None of us does. We come into this world without anything. We leave without anything. And everything we have is from God. We owe all to him, which eliminates boasting completely. It directs all praise to where it is due to God. That does not mean that you should avoid encouraging people with a word of appreciation, but maybe it's best to phrase it in a way that brings glory to God, such as God's doing great things through you. How about that? Or you could say, I'm blessed by the way you yield to the Lord. Taking an honest assessment of the gifts we've been given by God should humble us rather than feed our egos. The gifts are to be used for God's glory, not ours. So why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? If we boast in our abilities or gifts, the glory is going to the wrong place. 
Acknowledging what we've been given reminds us of our indebtedness to invest those talents and goods to advance the kingdom of God and exalt his name in the earth. Um, recently in one of our uh, Bible studies, we looked at Satan's fall in Ezekiel 28. And verse 17 of Ezekiel 28 reads, Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before the kings to feast their eyes on you. Pride, uh, Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. What warnings to not allow the gifts and calling of God to go to our heads and make us fall for the foolish idea that we have made ourselves. How can any believer be so arrogant when we look upon the cross? Verse eight, already you have all you want, already you've become rich. Without us, you've become kings and would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. Do we need to remember how blessed we are? You know, I think sometimes it's really important for us periodically to just sit and count our blessings. Just think of all the good things God has done for us, especially when we start to complain or murmur about our situation or we're getting down in the dumps. Just stop and think about everything God has done for you. Visit a third world mission work. That'll change your attitude. Volunteer at a hospital or a hospice facility. One of our attend attendees here, and I, I won't embarrass them by naming them, but they regularly visit the rehab facility at Kachina Point. And he asked which men didn't get a visitor. Now, mind you, this man has his own physical difficulties with health, but he went to comfort those who were worse off. Brothers and sisters, most of us are in the same shoes as these Corinthians. We've become rich like kings. We have so much to give. But where were they spiritually? I believe that is what Paul's addressing here. He's telling them that they think they've arrived. They have the best teachers. They have all the gifts of the Spirit. They boast in their favorite teacher while their spiritual poverty is being expressed in the factions that they were creating, a sign of their spiritual immaturity. Paul wishes they were spiritual giants, but spiritual maturity is evidenced by living to serve, by unity that comes from love and grace and boasting in Jesus alone. More than the physical blessings are those blessings that we have in knowing our Savior as our Redeemer. How many people do you know, family and friends, who have not opened their hearts to the redeeming love of Jesus. They don't know the peace that you have. They don't experience the comfort of the Holy Spirit that you do. They live with the fear of death from which you have been set free. How grateful we should be. And yet we know that all this and more is from the gracious hand of God upon our lives. how rich we are in the spirit, all because we've received the free gift of God. And it's good to remind ourselves where we would be without his grace. 
I know uh, one brother who isn't here this morning, he's not feeling well. He says, I know where I'd be. I'd be in jail or six feet under. And there's probably a few of us who could say the same. Brothers and sisters, be as confident in God as you can be while maintaining a healthy distrust in your old nature. Remember that the Lord is our keeper. He is the one who will present you faultless on that day. This verse reminds us of Jesus' letter to the church of Laodicea. He writes, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and solve salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Oh, we just talked about that shame of nakedness, didn't we? Dan's call to worship. Paul's reminding them that though they were well off physically, they were missing spiritual wealth because of all their foolish pride. He's about to contrast their wealth with what the apostles endured, the very men that they were claiming that they followed. Verse 9, For I think, I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. Paul's contrasting the lives of the apostles and what they were enduring for the sake of the gospel with the Corinthians' belief that they had arrived. All but one of the 12 apostles would die as a martyr. Actually, we are all sentenced to death unless the Lord returns first. What counts is what we do with the gift of life until the time he comes. The world, angels, and people saw how the apostles were chased from town to town as they sowed the seeds of the message of Jesus' life and burial and death and resurrection. So who was really rich? Who was laying up their treasure in heaven? Verse 10, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. Remember, in the first chapter, Paul declared the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul's using irony in this passage to help them see that they've chosen the way of the world instead of the way of the cross. All the apostles were examples to them. There will come a time when we will all reign and rule as kings, but it's in the future age. As the Corinthians read on through this letter, I imagine them, you know, kind of in a setting somewhat similar to this. They're, they're all gathered around, probably a smaller uh, home setting, and someone is, we got a letter from Paul, let's read it. And they're getting about to this point, and the Corinthians are going, oh boy, yikes, this is getting hard. As the Corinthians read on, they were starting to see that Paul was talking about the upside-down world of the kingdom. Yes, we are in the kingdom now, and we have privileges of being in that kingdom, but at the present, this world is still fallen and in rebellion toward God. The curse has not been lifted. They were boasting in the 
and proud about worldly things. The honor of this world almost always is given to those whose lives are focused on this world. And Paul's reminding them of some of the lessons he surely taught them while he was with them for a year and a half, but they've slipped back into honoring the things of the world that the world honors, which means their hearts were not set on things above. Paul continues by giving them a picture of what it's like to live wholly dedicated to God in verse 11. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. This was the life of the apostles as they spread the gospel message. He was saying the future age is not yet here. We're still in this world, but we're not of it. We still look for the return of Christ and a city that has foundations whose builder and maker is God. The apostles' examples reminded the Corinthians that the believers do not live for this world or judge by its standards. We're laying up treasures in heaven while we wait for the world to come. And we labor, verse 12, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. At first glance, um, you might think laboring with our hands is kind of out of place. But we have to understand that the Greek teachers of that day thought that laboring with their hands was beyond them. They were too educated for that. But Paul often supported himself and even those who were with him with his trade of leather working. He could repair tents or make leather sandals. He took with him the tools of his trade. The Corinthians may have thought this put him on a lower level than some of the other teachers, but Paul presents it to them as an example, as a badge of honor. When reviled they bless, it reminds us of Jesus' teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 11 and 12 from Matthew 5, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the example of Christ on the cross, forgiving those who crucified him. We should understand that they do not know what they're doing. We should be glad to be associated with the persecuted prophets who came before us. All those descriptions are reminding the Corinthians that they were being too worldly-minded. They lost touch with the humble example of Jesus that Paul was demonstrating to them with his life. In our last verse, verse 13, when slandered, we entreat. We've become and still and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Paul knew the prophet's description of the Messiah in Isaiah 53, verse 2 and 3, and he adopted it as his own standard. Isaiah predicted he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. The Corinthians probably also knew that passage as well, as we should. What did this say to the readers then and 
to us today. It should come as a sober shaking that we so easily get caught up with the ways of the world and the things that the world esteems. We can easily forget that man's ways are not God's ways and that we should expect hardship for the cause of Christ. It's not a bed of roses. When we read the testimonies of the servants of God, we see they all faced hardship of one kind or another. And why would our lives be any different? It isn't wrong to desire comfort and pleasure unless they come at the cost of denying Jesus' first place. If it comes at the cost of disobedience, our goals are no different from those in the world. What are the gifts and abilities that God has given you? How can you use them for the glory of God? How can you use them to advance the kingdom of God? By discipling new believers or, or helping someone who is, are you laying up your treasures on earth or in heaven? Paul's personal example challenged them to stop thinking like the world around them and to fix their eyes on Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's our example. This world is not our home. So take up your cross and follow him. Rejoice in the trials of this life as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Lay up your treasures in heaven and do all for the glory of God. Amen. Amen. I'm going to ask Jill to lead us in a closing song, and then I'll give the benediction.